If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, let's hear from Tammy. Support for this show is brought to you by Bloomerang. Our friends at Bloomerang really understand fundraisers, which is why they make donor management an online fundraising software that nonprofits love to use. To learn more and to join them in their vision of building a world inspired by giving, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. Today on the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, I am so happy to be talking with my good friend and fellow faculty member at the Institute for Charitable Giving, Shannon Duvall. She presently serves as the Senior Vice President of Philanthropy and Deputy Chief Philanthropy Officer at Common Spirit Health. Common Spirit is the nation's largest nonprofit health system, delivering clinical excellence across a system of 140 hospitals, and more than 1,000 care sites in 21 states here in the U.S. Shannon's career has spanned fundraising roles within academic medicine, a national health charity, and community-based care before becoming a leader at Common Spirit. Shannon holds an undergraduate degree from Luther College, where she now serves on the Board of Trustees. She has a master's degree in higher education administration from Indiana University and a master's of jurisprudence in healthcare law from Drake University Law School. She's a real smarty. (laughs) (laughs) Shannon, Shannon lives in greater Denver, Colorado with her husband, Delane, and two teenage sons, Miller and Kiefer. Welcome to the show, Shannon. Thank you, Tammy, and thank you for including me. I've been looking forward to this. Oh, good. Well, I am so delighted to talk with you, and I'm really excited for our audience to hear from you. So let me just start by saying, I am in awe of you, Shannon. (laughs) So nice. You're amazing. I mean, ultimately, you are responsible for leading major gifts, plan giving, grants, and campaigns for the largest nonprofit healthcare system in the United States. (laughs) Yeah, inhale, exhale. So tell me, how many philanthropy team professionals uh, are employed by Common Spirit? How much money are you collectively accountable for raising? And what's your team structure? Well, it is. It's a really fun job. And I think what I like the most about it is if you've seen one of our foundations, you've seen one, right? Because the complexity and diversity, we have everything from critical access hospitals, so really small hospitals, all the way to academic medical centers that are obviously much larger and more complex. So across our system, people might be surprised to know in total there's about 315 of us. So coming from raising money for academic medicine, relatively, I think that's smaller number than some people might expect. 
And I, I hope over time, as we continue to prove kind of our return on investment, that that's a group of colleagues that could grow um, and that hospitals will see us as, as an area in which to invest to sustain the mission. So we last year, we had our best year ever, which was so fulfilling and exciting. And I just want to give a shout out to our teams and our markets. And most importantly, of course, our generous benefactors. Uh, we raised last year a little over $300 million across the ministry. And, you know, that's really, if we do a look back over the past five years, over a billion dollars raised for what I consider to be, you know, a really transformational mission. Uh, I think the other thing that was very interesting to live through for all of us, of course, was COVID or is, it's, it's still with us, uh, but particularly in healthcare philanthropy, because I think it gave us, it's, it was horrible. Let's start with that. The always trying to be a glass half full person. I think the positive thing for us was the ability to communicate differently with donors about why healthcare philanthropy is so important and why if people want world-class care in their own backyards, the role philanthropy needs to play in that given the considerably challenging time for healthcare economics. So that I think was a horrible thing that has turned into an opportunity. And, and for me, not only is it because we have great professionals raising funds, but it's because we have great donors who've answered the call of, you know, philanthropy is needed more than ever for healthcare. Our accountability structure is really interesting and, you know, fairly complex, as you might expect in a system as large as ours. Really, we have divisions that where we have philanthropy leaders. And then on the whole, um, those folks have uh, market chief philanthropy officers that report to them. And then the divisional folks typically um, have a solid line reporting structure to their division leadership. Just like our chief philanthropy officers have a solid line to their hospital presidents and then a dotted line up to the philanthropy leadership like me. So we're doing a lot of leading through influence and less with what I would call solid line accountability. I personally have found that to be a really fun interesting. And I've built a different muscle working in that environment. You know, it's pretty easy to go tell someone, please do this because I'm your boss. It's harder. And I think more challenging and fun to go and say, Hey, here's a value proposition. I think we can help bring to your market to help you increase results and impact. Wouldn't you consider partnering with us on that? So the good news story for our accountability structure, I would say, Tammy is we just work with a bunch of very talented and collegial professionals. And so I think they see us on the whole, I'm sure there are days they think we're a headache, but <laughs> on the whole, you know, I think they do see that we're bringing value and our goal is to not step into a space where we're not needed. We're trying to come in and add value and such that, you know, 140 hospitals and 83 fundraising entities don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. So that that does that does that help? Is there any oh. other follow up questions? That... Uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> you just said so much. So I do want to unpack a bit of that. Okay. So the first thing that I kind of want to unpack is you know when you were just acknowledging so beautifully your your donors, and how a pandemic world created new opportunities to engage them to make a case that was both next level, compelling and urgent. You know, a lot of times when I talk with 
chief development officers, chief advancement officers, major gift officers, they, through the pandemic, they've said, I'm having a really hard time connecting with my donors, mm-hmm. right? So getting access, people may or may not like Zoom or a good old fashioned phone call, or, or maybe we as fundraisers are the ones who aren't as comfortable with those tools. You know, we're much more comfortable face to face. So just talk to me about how you were and your team were able to engage donors at that deeper level. Yeah, that's a great question, Tammy. And I would tell you that really early on in the pandemic from the National Philanthropy staff, we identified Zoom and how we utilize it as a tool as a key training opportunity because I've been in this world 25 years and I had never done a cold call on somebody on Zoom or with someone or presented a proposal on Zoom. So pretty quickly, we had to develop training for ourselves and our teams on how we could utilize that as a tool. I think the other thing that I saw in our, especially our major gift officers, was such a high level of creativity and really rooted in empathy for their donors. And I'm going to, you know, I'm sure everybody on the podcast has examples of what they did as well. But, you know, depending on what part of the country you were living, if the weather was nicer, they would do, you know, come stand in your driveway and have a cup of coffee, walk the campus of the hospital. The weather, it was very weather dependent. Our Midwestern folks had a little harder time, of course. A number of the other things I thought were very inventive was ordering the same lunch for your donor and ordering to as yourself and then getting on zoom and pretending you're at a restaurant, you know, eating lunch together. So I think the other thing that spirit of, it was, I want to acknowledge it was much easier for donors that people already had a connection to. And so I think a lot of people found themselves with a lot of time and, you know, especially older donors, pretty isolated and lonely. And so our gift officers found that, people were more likely when you already had an established relationship to spend time on the phone. And so then it was about getting ourselves out of the way, getting, not having us be the barrier to that outreach. And then if somebody didn't want to talk, they would just say, thanks for reaching out. I'm doing okay. And I, you know, I don't really like to talk on the phone. I think oftentimes we project things sometimes for our donors that don't exist and, or discount the fact that they're adults who have good people skills. And if they don't have time for a call or aren't really in the mood, they'll tell us that. So those would be some of the examples of, and I think the biggest thing that I was so proud of our gift officers is never was the mission more needed. And so they couldn't back away. They could stay in a home office and, and not do anything. So I'm just really proud of our team and the fact that I think we made ourselves more relevant than we ever had to to donors. Yeah, I love that. And what great examples. So the other thing that you shared that I want to unpack a bit, and you just alluded to it now, and that is you have all of these gift officers, many, a majority presumably, of whom are working from their home offices. Right. And, and they have a dotted line to you, your your national team, not even a direct line. So for those of us who are managing remote teams, A, 
How do you nurture, build, engage, continue to build and strengthen those relationships remotely? How do you ensure transparency and accountability? And at times when you do call teams to come together, or for a lot of my clients in healthcare, like they're back in the office or they're asked to be back in the office three days a week. Right. And some people don't want to go back. So (laughs) when you're working with remote teams, especially in this new world where we might have hybrid work models, how are you engaging them, holding them accountable, celebrating so they have that satisfaction of being a part of a team? I'm just reading so much right now. It's that, you know, people join companies, but they stay with teams. They stay, stay oh, with colleagues. that's a great way to say it. Yeah. 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 That's a great question, Tammy. And I think, you know, we've tried to use some creativity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about your cult, the cultural aspect of your question first. And, uh, you know, that's something as simple as I had a colleague who said to me, I remember when I used to just stop in your office with a Diet Coke and talk to you. And so we said, well, what's stopping us from doing that now? So instead of always having Zooms on our calendar, we would we would Zoom call, just drop in on somebody and say, at the outset, I'm not here to talk about work. I'm here to see how you're doing and have a cup of coffee with you, you know? And so that has kind of taken fire in our culture of how we can intentionally create those moments of intersection that used to happen, you know, at the water cooler. One of our communications leaders did the coolest thing. I thought we happened to use uh, Gmail and Google products. So we have a channel called the water cooler and you're not allowed to put anything on there that's work-related. It's all, here's my son's first day of school. Here's a German chocolate cake I baked. Here's you know, fun celebrations. And that is, that sounds maybe even as I say it, a little silly, but that has captured, because the other thing to remember for your, or maybe your listeners don't know this, being a part of a national health system, even if we went to the office, there's at least three quarters of the people I wouldn't see because they're in California or Nevada. And so this has been a way to forge some of that fun, some of the culture. The the final example I'll give you is, Um, we have something called a monthly mingle that's just a zoom call. And usually there's a theme like we play jeopardy or, you know, it's, it's not just come and talk about what movie or book you read, but uh, movie you saw or book you read, but it is a, once again, it's an hour a month where people don't talk about work. They have fun together. And as a high degree extrovert, I, it's still not the same. I'm going to throw that out there. It's, I still miss people. I still miss, because I am home officing and now am categorized as a remote worker. So, you know, I think that that's our new normal. And so then how do we make the most of it? Now on to your, the second half of your question, which was about accountability. I think the way we've tried to do that, and it would probably be a better question for one of our gift officers, but is through, as you use the word transparency. I think that from the first day I was a baby fundraiser in raising money for a college of medicine, we showed up at our prospect management meetings and it was all there, right? You could tell what someone was working on. And then we, let's face it, we all had months where we fell behind and we hadn't gotten our contact reports in and 
that wasn't a very fun meeting to be a part of because it looked like you weren't performing and you weren't living up to what the mission of your organization requires of you. So I think being a part that dashboarding and that transparency has been really important. And then on the flip side of that, I think the celebrating. Uh, so one thing we did was, uh, and, the, and once again, this is a small example, but we had kind of a raffle for iPads. We gave away six iPads and, you know, across 300 employees, that's not that many, but people c- would qualify by utilizing our CRM and putting in their contact reports and their proposals into the system. And then at the end, we had a drawing, which at the end of the day, while the iPad is still owned by Common Spirit, it is, I think it's a great tool for, especially when people are now back in living rooms and boardrooms, when you get to your car, you can quick do your call, if you want, your contact report. So things like that, I think we've tried to, you know, if I have a bell in my office. And so if there's a big gift, I Zoom call somebody and start ringing the school bell. You know, some of the things are like, what's old is new again, is how how do we make it fun? And how do we celebrate people? I think that's the, your comment about people join organizations, but they stay because of the teams. It, it, it takes more intentional muscle to keep the team fire burning. For me, I I like that because my dad used to tell you, you know, if you're green, you're growing. If you're ripe, you're rotten. So I always, you know, that's a good Midwestern colloquialism. I always want to be continuing to grow. And while this wasn't a fun way to, to have to grow, I think for people who looked at it as an opportunity, we've grown so much and our teams have grown so much. So I, I hope that gives you a little flavor of what we've been up to. Yeah, it's really helpful. I'm curious what your take is on this new phenomenon called quiet quitting. Yeah. Right. And so for our listeners who may or may not have heard about quiet quitting, I I suspect you have, but I feel like there's two schools of thought, one school of thought, which would have been my parents, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like the worst trait you could possibly have would be being lazy. Uh you, You could be unkind, but do you get some work done? <laughs> no, I'm joking about the unkind part. <laughs> but one take on it is lazy, just scraping by, doing the bare minimum, kind of phoning it in. Mm-hmm. The other take on it is, you know, if we really believe that mental health is important, that having boundaries and prioritizing our employees, our our own health and well-being is important, then quiet quitting is just a reflection of me saying, I'm not going to work 60 hours a week. Right. Right? So, like, there's two schools of thought and lots of shades in between. What are your thoughts and what are you seeing? That's a great framing question. I think... What our industry needs to, and when I'm, when I'm talking about philanthropy, not just because in healthcare, let's face it, especially the frontline caregivers, they're there for this shift. There's no, I mean, hopefully there's not quiet quitting because they have to be all on for those 12 hours or those, those eight hours. So I think in philanthropy, we need to be a little more open, curious 
and trusting, I guess is what I would say, if the results are there and if somebody is producing at the level that we've asked them to in 30 hours, well, good for them, right? What I would encourage them then though, is to say, what are you going to do with those other 10 hours? Like go volunteer, get your CFRE, read another book. Like, what are you going to do to invest back in yourself to recharge your batteries? I just think gone are the days that we have such a prescriptive, this is what success in a work week looks like. I also think people are a lot more loyal. I was just talking to another colleague about if all of a sudden at 3.30, if somebody needs to go run and pick up a kid at high school, go do that. And I really do think there was an era, I would have to tell you when I started in fundraising, if I wasn't at my desk by seven and if I didn't stay till six, now that's not fair because I was out you know, making visits, but somehow I, I was lazy or I wasn't doing my job. And I think that paradigm to your point has totally shifted. And as leaders and organizations, if we don't mentally shift with it, we're going to definitely lose people. My final um, comment on this, Tammy, is I was reading an article recently about, and I'm sure you've read the same articles, about the trial in Europe of the four-day work week and that they're seeing higher levels of productivity as measured by results for the organization and, not surprisingly, higher levels of employee satisfaction. So I don't want my boss or other people to be to think, oh my gosh, she's suggesting, not necessarily, but I just think that's an example of, and this is another thing, as horrible as COVID was, I think we can thank the quarantine for this, is people saw, you know, I don't have somebody that I'm looking over their shoulder in their office five days a week, and they're producing at higher levels, at least for us, than they ever have. So I think that allowed us to be more open to new paradigms. So I, the only the only caveat I would make on the quiet quitting is what are, what are you doing to reinvest in yourself to be better for your mission? If you find yourself with extra time in a week, that'd be absolutely. my challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. So what are the systems and measurements that you use to keep team members clear on their goals? I'm mean, mm-hmm. a big fan of role clarity. Like we need to know what's our role, what does success look like? So how do you keep them clear on their goals, their accountabilities, and their achievement, their progress, without it feeling punitive? Yeah. I would say, Tammy, a lot of that is is really managed more at the divisional level than the national level. But I can tell you generally what we talk about as a leadership team, I'll put it in the good old-fashioned lead and lag measures, right? So the lag measure is at the end of the year, each of our 83 fundraising entities has a goal. And at the end of the year, did they hit their goal? And that's, that's not only a goal of fundraising, that's a goal of transfers back to the hospital to, for the mission. So how are we utilizing philanthropy and what, what has been built over the years to help with the sustainability of the mission, particularly given the challenging economic times in healthcare? So as we know, though, that if we wait until June 30, which is the end of our fiscal year, that's a little too late and we can't help people course correct if maybe they've, you know, fallen off the railroad tracks of where where we're headed to be successful. So the lead measures that, which is probably everybody on your podcast is familiar with, would be visits, proposals. I like to look at, and I know our division leaders do too, a kind of a conversion rate to say, 
okay, how many proposals that are being presented versus funded? Because oftentimes, particularly in emerging major gift officers, I find that's where some of the richest coaching can go on is to say, hey, maybe we're either going to the wrong person with the wrong proposal or the wrong amount. And so, you know, that's called the school of hard knocks, right? You can't learn that until you, and I, if people are honest on this call, anybody who's as old as I am will say, oh my gosh, my first year or two, I wasn't batting a hundred, right? I would, you never do. If you do, we know you're not talking with enough people, but my conversion rate was much lower my first year than my 10th year, right? Because people invested in me and coached me. So, you know, I think those would be the the key areas that we look at. And I think the other thing that is really hard because we're all as philanthropy leaders, pleasers, it's hard to say no. It's hard to say, I my first boss in fundraising would say, and I, I just love this because I ended up having a bowl for my office that I now have here in my home office. It says, feed the bulldog. Because my boss, whenever I brought in anything to him, would say, would that feed the bulldog? And what he meant by that was, will it raise money, right? The bulldog is our mission. And are we securing resources in our, in our case to help the medical students and physicians and caregivers that we were privileged to partner with? So I think that's one other thing that we're trying to build the muscle of all of us, including myself, of if you add something, we just went through a big strategic planning process. If we add something, what are you taking away? Because back to this whole, we have to sharpen the saw. We have to get a better laser focus. And in our case, our focus is major gifts. And that comes in the forms of grateful patient fundraising, different campaigns, you know, estate giving and blended giving. But that is feeding the bulldog and anything that takes us off and into another direction. It might be a really cool program. It might be interesting. It might be somebody's pet project, but we, we have to say, gosh, that's a great idea. Let's uh, the other thing that my first boss in fundraising did. I had a, a colleague who was a little more, how shall I say it? Entrepreneurial than me. I was more like by the book, like I'm going to raise money. He would come up with it. And so my boss, which now looking back 25 years later, I don't know if this was good or not, but bought him a notebook and said, anytime you have an entrepreneurial idea like that, write it in the notebook and we'll come back to it. But for now, what I need you to do, because we were in a big a campaign. Now what I need to do is raise money for the campaign. So it wasn't like, that's a silly idea, throw it away. It was, let's memorialize that and come back to it. So I guess that'd be the other thing Tammy, in the transparency zone of we have to be honest with ourselves and our colleagues that we just can't do it all. And we have to focus on the highest return on investment activities. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. And I think so often because we are people pleasers, it's not just our boss that might come to us with, you know, another thing. It can be a donor. 100%. Yes. In fact, it likely is a donor. Yes. Yes. I mean, I had donors who owned yoga studios and we'd like to do a t-shirt sale <laughs> and co-brand and it's like it's the true. It is true. And so and those, how do you how do you how do you have that respectful so you, they still know how much you care about them and their how much they care about the institution but kind of redirect that energy to activities that will yield more of an investment for your mission. 
Yes, yes. And that is our accountability to navigate those. In fact, I was just talking with another colleague in the sector who's been in the sector as long as we have, right? 25 years plus. And we were talking about just the art of conversation and the power dynamics in major gift fundraising. I mean, interesting. Yes, that we really need to respectfully show up at the table as a peer, right? And that gives us the space because really we're partners. We're partners right. in funding the mission. It's saving lives. And you know, in your case, as, as a hospital, a healthcare system, saving lives, healing people, doing the work. And so as a partner, it does imply more equal footing. I, I think that's an excellent point. Whereas I, probably in the fir- early years, I would say it was in a university setting, maybe it was a little more mother may I-ish. Who knows what to attribute that to? Maybe that was just, I was a more junior professional, but you're right. I think the best things come out of an equal partnership like that. So that's, that's a really good thing to call out for your listeners. Yeah. And in that space, we can say, hmm, I love your passion to kind of merge yoga, t-shirts, contributing. Let's explore how that might look or how that might better serve, have a bigger impact, like your intention. Yeah. So I think that we need that permission. Like we need to give ourselves that permission to lead those conversations. Our friends at Bloomerang know the importance of year-end fundraising to a nonprofit's longevity and success throughout the year. We know that 50% of nonprofits receive a majority of their annual contributions from October to December. To learn how you can make the most of this giving season, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser to get your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips. Yeah, I also think something that I wish I would have known a while uh, in the beginning is particularly business people. I would encourage your listeners if they're in their more, you know, formative years of their career, know your numbers, know your balance sheet, know because if you're talking to a business person and you say, "Oh yeah, we could do that special event and you know, that'd be 50 cents on the dollar," or we could focus on major gifts and that, you know, that's going to be four to seven cents. They're like, they think, yes. Okay. Let's do that. It's yeah. I, because to your point, they love the organization. They're well-intentioned as an equal partner at the table, but with professional knowledge, they don't have, it's our job to be able to help them understand why focusing on these other activities is critical for the mission. Yeah. And I really do think that we need to lead those conversations and share. Yes. We're storytellers, but we also need to share our expertise about the profession, the return on investment for different fundraising activities. Otherwise, the nonprofit sector can be viewed as the less than sector. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. And it makes it hard to attract talent. It makes it hard to recruit board members or to really position board members as accountable for governance and fiduciary accountability versus thinking, oh, I need to come in and get deeply involved in operations because 
these are good-hearted, maybe not expert knowledge level people who work at nonprofits. Absolutely. I, I think that's a super point because if if we don't represent our own expertise, how do we expect that our board members and donors will know we have it? Yeah. You know, it's not a, you know, the whole two ears, one mouth, use them proportionately. I do definitely believe in that as it relates to working with donors. At the same time, they are come prepared to ask us questions about what the investment we're requesting from them. And so representing our expertise to them is very important. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so one of the other things that we've had conversations about um, that I want to kind of bring forth here is around creating that culture of philanthropy and, you know, building confidence, even at the board level and then throughout the organization, that philanthropy, that advancement is an investment center, not a cost center. Yes. Right. So for every dollar that Shannon gets in her budget, she's going to produce $5 return. That's right. That's right. And there's not, no matter what area your listeners are working in, there's not many uh, in healthcare, we would say billable services. I would say there aren't any um, that could produce that level of ROI at this time. And that's, that's not their fault. It's the way the economics have changed. And so you're right. I think that's another thing, Tammy, that is challenging right now for leaders is that incongruence of growing and shrinking, especially where we happen to be a Catholic faith-based health system and there's an ethic of equity and fairness. And so sometimes that doesn't feel good if one area is growing and another area is being asked to shrink. I think though that as leaders, we have to lean into that and get a lot more comfortable with that incongruence because it's only math. I, I I know it's all hard. I don't mean to oversimplify it, but you're correct. But that also implies that we as leaders need to be prepared to take that business case to the decision makers and with confidence and not apologize. And, and so I, but I do, I want to acknowledge that I think that's culturally hard right now that we have this um, shrink and grow going on at the same time. Yeah. I know I have always taken that case when I've wanted to add staff or make an investment in technology within an organization to actually do the math. Like, here are our numbers. Here are the projected uh, one-year returns, two-year, three-year returns. And I can say, when in my experience, when I've brought a case forward, it's never been turned down. Now, it might not be this year. Correct. It could be year two. Yeah, it might be a timing issue. Yes. And I've also found that if I can find a board champion, one, two, three people on the board who have your back, who also understand that advancement or philanthropy is an investment center with a return versus a cost center, man, does it make a difference. That's so true. That's so true, Tammy. And I think we will be surprised, at least in my observation, how many of our colleagues haven't developed that skill set of, I mean, you kind of have to act like you're a franchisee of, I mean, I know that sounds horrible, but you know, if you want an investment in the franchise, you have to build that business plan. And I think some of the people, at least that I've observed, go in a little less prepared, shall we say, and I need another major gift officer. Great. 
to show me, you know, the Missouri state, show me. So I think, I think that that exercise you just discussed of developing the business plan and then getting um, key supporters in lockstep with you is critical. And I would just encourage your listeners to, if they haven't done that before, that you're a great resource and there's lots of other good resources that they could build those skills if they haven't yeah. done it yet. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so, you know, for a long time, we've said, you know, advancement, make friends with the marketing folks, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I would add, make friends with your finance folks. Oh, 100%. 100%. And, you know, one of the um, classes that I love is at the AHP Madison Institute is, it's in one of the tracks, but it's how to speak CFO. Because if we go, we have a different language, right? And it's complimentary, but it's imperative to us to speak CFO. And then what I've learned is boards, donors, everybody has, back to your professionalism comment, a lot more respect for you because you're showing up like a CEO. Yes. Yes. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And so I just encourage, I mean, I would talk to so many groups and they're like, we need more staff. We need this. We need that. And I can't get it approved. And really, to your point, act like an owner. That's right. Act That's like right. an owner. Make that case. <laughs> just like we're just so masterful at making cases to donors, mm-hmm. to foundations. Like we can run the numbers. We'll tell the story. We cast a vision. It's so exciting. We can do that internally, too. That's such a great point. That's that's exactly right. So just remember to do exactly what you do so well to the external public, to your internal colleagues. Absolutely. I love it. So, you know what? It's fourth quarter. Now's the time. Let's Let's make this. Let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So talk to me about the future of fundraising and what type of innovations you're exploring at Common Spirit. Some of the innovations that I'm the most excited about maybe won't seem too innovative to your audience, but you know, I do think this technology of Zoom is here to stay. And how do we continue to build a skill set to maximize its use, not lose connectivity with people who are dear to us and our institutions, but you know, we've in the past two years, we've had gift officers close a $10 million gift on Zoom, a $15 million gift on Zoom. And then of course, $10,000. So depending on the size of your organization, I'm going to project something that at the beginning of quarantine, I was really worried if especially older donors would take to this technology. And now all generalizations are false, but on the whole, our people have loved it. And in fact, the hybridization of We just had a a donor in Phoenix who said, could I do, the proposal was in person, but could we finalize the details of the gift agreement on Zoom? Because to come to the hospital, it's a 40-minute drive each way for that person. So I think everything of what we do, in my opinion, is majority art over science. But So I think that maybe that's not super innovative because we've been using it the past few years, but... I think our gift officers are still learning what's the balance on that. And so I I think that'll be fun to continue to dabble and and play with that. I think in our system, this is maybe less about a fundraising tool, but more about how we move upstream and thinking about what keeps people healthy. And so, 
you know, not gone are the days that we're just simply thinking about raising money for bricks and mortar. You know, we're talking about social determinants of health and screening in clinics about, do you have food? Do you have a safe place to live? Do you have electricity? Because what we know is 75% of someone's health is outside of a clinical setting. So if we're only looking at 25%, our patients are never going to be healthy. So I think that's exciting to think about an innovation of how can philanthropy be a catalyst for greater health in our country? Our health system impacts one out of every four Americans. And so I'm excited about how philanthropy, we can partner with our community health colleagues to really move upstream and transform what health looks like. Um, that's, that's super exciting. And then I guess the last thing that I think will be fun in my role to help support and, and, and work on is historically in a health system, there's been maybe more parallel path activities, meaning each of our markets are raising money for their communities that they're serving. There are thematic umbrellas, I guess I would call it, or, or ribbons that go over all of that. So is that oncology, cardiology, and you know, big ideas get bigger money. So I think we're not quite to that point yet, but other health systems have had more of what I would approach as a comprehensive campaign that involves their markets, but then also have a national framing element. So, you know, those are some of the things, once again, you, you're probably laughing saying, well, those really aren't that innovative. They're more conceptual, but I think, keep in mind, our, we're, we joke, we're, we're a toddler. Our health system is three years old. So we're still building together what that can be and the transformational nature philanthropy can play in that. So I'm, I'm really excited and I have, I'm really positive and bullish on what that can help to do to better serve our patients and caregivers. I find that very inspiring. I am not laughing. And for the record, you're a toddler who raised over $300 million last year. Hey, that's pretty good. I wish those, I don't have a toddler anymore, but when I did, I wish my toddler would have done that. (laughs) So good. So Shannon, as we start to wrap up, what advice do you have for small and large shop fundraising teams alike in terms of galvanizing them, bringing them together to really get to like that next level? So I'll give a little more texture on this answer, Tammy, but I would simplify it down to carpe diem. And I have a sign in my office that says make every day count. And so what are, no matter if you're a shop of one or a shop of a hundred, what are you doing today? to advance and grow so that you can best support your mission and best serve your donors because that's what they want to do, right? They want to be able to have transformational impacts through their generosity. So don't, I I think there's always the opportunity and we all have those days where, you know, you're like, I need just a little more to turn the corner. I think if you just hear that carpe diem in your head, I think whatever that means for you, based on the size of your shop or the mission you're representing, just put one foot in front of the other, and that creates a momentum that you don't have, as we all know, if, if you're kind of just hung up on, on what to do next. So just carpe diem. Carpe diem. <laughs> Beautiful. At the end of each episode, I like to ask a few rapid fire questions to provide even mm-hmm. more insight and value for our listeners. Are you game? 
I'm game. Let's do it. All right. First question. What's the best fundraising advice you've ever received? Don't make decisions for your donors. Mm-hmm. Present the opportunity. Love it. What book do you recommend to our audience and why? So a really good friend of mine gave me this book called The Boy, The Mole, The Fox, and The Horse. And it's uh, by Charlie Mackery. And really, it's good if you're seven years old. It's good if you're 70. And I, I won't spoil the book. It's beautifully visually and there's wonderful kernels of wisdom. So I picked three quick selected pearls of wisdom for you all today. One is ask for help and refuse to give up. The second one is know you are enough. And the third one is know that you are important to the world and to your mission that you're representing and you bring gifts no one else can. So check it out. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. We will include a link to that in our show notes. Okay, great. Yeah, you definitely teared me up. Thank <laughs> you. So good. What are the three most important traits a successful fundraising professional must possess? The number one thing that I look for in hiring people is curiosity. So they need to be curious. They need to be tenacious. The third one, Tammy, I'm cheating because it's too hard it's a heart head thing. I think that, you know, you need someone who has the acumen to be good. And in addition to the head, kind of the heart, the commitment to the mission, as well as I kind of put an emotional quotient to that blending of head and heart. And I think the people who are the most successful in serving their donors are the people who have that good balance of head and heart. Mm, So good. So it was a little bit of a cheater. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) But, But a truth. Thank you. Yes. What's your favorite fundraising tool or application? Well, based on my comments earlier, you're not going to be surprised that I said Zoom. Mm -hmm. However, closely behind that, we've in the past year, uh, one of our colleagues has brought to us ThankView. Yes. And it's been a great tool for stewardship that can be replicated um, in many different settings. So another cheater answer. Yeah. And so for our listeners, ThankView is a tool that allows you to take video like right off your smartphone and then you can kind of brand it, brand it up and then send it out to multiple donors, individual, like you can send it out to different groups or segments of donors. I like BombBomb. I've used both. So, So there's a lot of great tools out there. I love that. Really good. And I absolutely love when I get a video message. Me too. From someplace I've given. No, it's true. I think sometimes it's as simple as that, right? What has been meaningful to you as a donor? And then try to replicate that for your donors. Yes. All right. Next question. What's your favorite fundraising conference and why? Okay. I'm doing all these cheater answers. So I I had a tie on this one too. Of course, the Institute for Charitable Giving, where Tammy and I teach, and by the way, she does a flat out awesome job there. And <laughs> as then, do you. As do thank you. you. And then closely linked to that, um, I've had the pleasure of serving as the chair of the Association for Healthcare Philanthropy Madison Institute for the last three years. And I've been on faculty since 2016 there. So I chose them both because, you know, Madison is a week long immersive experience. The Institute for Charitable Giving is a little bit shorter, but I would say packs a punch that is hard to argue with. So 
depends on your time allocation and you know where where you live in the country probably but either of those you couldn't go wrong yeah so good and then last question knowing what you know now about fundraising what advice would you give your younger self just starting out in the profession such a great question cheating for the last time <laughs> uh, first thing would be fake it till you make it i think i thought i had to have it all figured out and just, you know, back to that forward motion go, and go do it, surround, but surround yourself with great mentors and like the, the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse ask for help. Like, don't, I think, especially as a young female executive, I felt like I had to have it all figured out and I couldn't ask for help. And that was just foolhardy. So, and the second one is closely linked. Perfection is the enemy of progress. Don't mm. wait till you think you have it all figured out go do it. The muscle will be built by practicing and uh, avail yourself, especially if you're a gift officer, to look at someone you think is very successful and it doesn't have to be in your own organization and ask them if you could accompany them on calls, visits. For me, that was the best gift was when more senior gift officers allowed me in. And the donor has to be open to that too, of course. Um, to learn. And I mean, we do it in medicine all the time. A resident comes in with a physician, a medical student. Comes. So be a student of the game and don't think you have to have it all figured out. Really good. Thank you for joining us, Shannon. You're, as I said, at the top of the show, you're amazing. Oh, thank you, Tammy. The feeling is mutual and thank you for including me. And I hope your listeners got a few kernels of knowledge from our dialogue. Yeah, I'm sure there was loads of value and probably pages of notes. <laughs> If you want to learn more about Shannon Duvall or follow her on social media, we've included links to her LinkedIn handle in the show notes, as well as a link to check out the remarkable work being done at Common Spirit. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast with me, Tammy Zonker, and keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. Learn why fundraisers love using Bloomerang and grab your copy of the 13 year-end fundraising tips ebook at bloomerang.com forward slash intentional dash fundraiser. The link is in the show notes. That's it for this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. If you like this podcast, subscribe and download each episode on your favorite podcast platform. Share it on social media with the hashtag, The Intentional Fundraiser, and tag me, Tammy Zonker, and you'll be entered into a drawing for some great swag, books, and courses. And if you like today's show, you might also be interested in becoming a member of my Fundraising Transformer community where I go live twice a month with my members with fundraising training and group coaching to help transform those fundraising issues that keep you awake at night where I pull back the curtain on how you can take your fundraising results to the next level by teaching ways you can improve your development operations create a results driven donor centric development plan strengthen donor relationships improve your donor retention rates and build a raging monthly giving program and a successful major gifts program and how you can approach each day to ensure you'll perform at your highest level so you can be the best fundraiser and the best person you can possibly be. You can learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com 
Facebook.com forward slash transformers. Thank you for showing up and for having the courage and determination to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. Bye for now.